Welcome to Kingdom Living Ministries, where our vision is knowing God, loving people, and making disciples. We trust this week's message will be a blessing to your life. Enjoy the teaching ministry of KLM. Hallelujah. How many are blessed this morning? Amen, amen. amen. Uh, so before I even start, let's uh, start with a word of prayer. Uh, as you know, the PD is out um, preaching at uh, uh, Pastor Evans Pierre's church. Um, and so we're going to lift him up in prayer also. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this morning that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, for the, the moment of praise and worship through song that we had this morning, Lord, already aware of your presence, oh God, Lord. And just as the song says, Lord, let us be an open space, Lord. You have your reign in our lives, Lord. You tell us where to go. You tell us what to say, oh God. Um, you direct us, oh God, that we are open, Lord, to what you have called us to be, oh Lord, and what you have called us to do. Um, so I thank you, oh God, for us being worthy to be vessels, Lord. And that being worthy, Lord, is only found because you made us worthy through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, at this time, I lift up our pastor um, as he goes and preaches. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for his ability to pre bring the word, oh God. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for him being available and even being open where he is, oh God, Lord, so that you can flow through him, oh God. Um, that not even just through the word of the, uh, not just through the word, Lord, but even through your miracles and through your wonders, Lord, that he may even lay hands, oh God, on the people, Lord, if you lead them to do so, oh God. I thank you, Lord, for that church, um, for, for Pastor Evans Pierre, Lord, and all his members, oh God. We thank you, Lord, for the gift to the body that they are, Lord, and the gift to the body that our pastor is, oh God. Lord, direct me this morning, Lord. Let the words out of my mouth, O oh God, be pure and holy in accordance to your scriptures, Lord. Let me not fill in blank where you've left in blank, let where you've intentionally left blank, Lord. But let me preach your already sufficient word this morning to your people, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for fertile soil, Lord, that where these seeds have been planted, Lord, that you will bring forth growth. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Uh, if you could turn with me to two scriptures this morning. Uh, first of all, good morning. Good morning. My mama taught me better. <laughs> um, sermon that I, I, PD asked me to preach was in my place. And those who have been with KLM for a while, this is probably like my version 4.0 uh, <laughs> of this. Uh, but it was definitely uh, something that we definitely do need to return to, to really understand the seriousness of the cross um, and what really happened on Calvary. Um, and so we're going to delve into that. I'm not going to preach before I preach. Second uh, Corinthians five verse twenty one. You have it. Uh, please stand and say Amen. Second Corinthians five verse twenty one. You have it. Please stand and say Amen. If you don't have it, tell me to hold up. Amen. All right, and it reads, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, while you're there, uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 24. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. And it reads, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the word that, that is already written, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for the word that you will speak through me this morning. Uh, let it penetrate hearts, penetrate minds, Lord, as we revisit, Lord, the, the seriousness of the, the price that was paid on Calvary. We thank you in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Amen. So today I want to talk about um, what's a doctrine called substitutionary atonement. Uh, everybody say it with me, substitutionary atonement. Yeah, I like a little classroom. I like it. Uh, y'all, y'all pray for me. I found. I, I think I found my uh, my drive. I mean, we talking about praise reports, uh, so that's my praise report. Uh, I was in real quick. You know, PD usually has a little sermonette before he sermons, so I'm gonna I'm give my testimony before I I, I preach. Uh, but uh, but uh, just I don't know. This past two weeks, I just been on a drive, like a real, like on a real drive, and I, I know. You know, every time I say this to somebody, like, yeah, Alan, you should have known already. But I really found my passion in teaching, Amen. you know. And, and for those who don't know, preaching and teaching is two different things. It's very similar, but it's two different things. The way PD explains it, says preaching is proclaiming, teaching is explaining. And so I, I, I've, I don't, it's like a, a new fire, a new drive, a new push uh, that I've been finding. So I, I, that's my praise report. I've just been on a high. Um, this past couple two weeks, um, I had the opportunity to to speak to uh, some young believers, young believers, well, young in age, but some some also young in in, in the faith, who had who feel the call to preach, and so kind of went over the big picture of the Bible. And since then, I've just been like, I had like a whiteboard and everything. I was like, I was like, man, why did I think about being a teacher? Um, in the biblical school, not in the public school. I don't, I don't got time for all the people. I need people that, that are expected to be saved so I can hold you to that standard. When you act up, I'm going to call you out on it. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that's, that's my praise report. Anyway, uh, so that little moment of y'all repeating it was kind of reminding me, so I, I felt like I need to share that. Um, so substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement is, is it, what it means is that atonement means that something was paid for and substitutionary means that something was in place of. And so substitutionary atonement means that Christ took our place on the cross to pay for our sins. Um, it wasn't just this act um, so that we remember and have this, this memory of this cross, uh, just something that we had hold that's just the center of our faith, but there was really a price literally that was paid on that cross. And not only that, there was a price that was paid, but the price was supposed to be paid by us. And so Christ took on our debt in our place. Amen. Um, and so with the scriptures that we just read in, in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, Alan Jean version, AJV of the Bible, says he who, who knew no sin became sin so that we who knew no righteousness could become righteous. Um, so, so we have to understand that Christ did not deserve at any point, I mean, we all should know that, that, uh, that Christ did not disturb at any point any of the, 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 the death on the cross or even the persecution up until the cross. But yet he knowingly took on the offense that we should have ta- taken in order for us to take on the blessings that he, he bestowed. Amen? Amen? Amen. So I just want to go through three points this morning uh, and, and as we drive towards that substitution uh, to really understand the price that was paid on, on Calvary. Uh, number one, I want to talk about our sin is a serious offense. Um, number two, that God's wrath against our sin is just. Um, and number three, that Christ paid for our sin by satisfying our God, satisfying God's wrath as our substitute. 
Amen. Amen. So number one, our sin is an offense. Let's take it back to Genesis. Uh, most of us know the story. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, in the perfect image of God. And you know sin. Uh, they had no belly buttons. That's a, that's a, that's a little uh, fun fact. Uh, you know, belly buttons is a biblical core. They weren't born in. All right. Anyway. Uh, but Adam and Eve were born um, into this, this perfect world. Um, and they were given dominion over the earth. They said, you know, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. You have dominion. Um, we see in Genesis 2 that God gave Adam a job to, to take care of the Garden of Eden, to name all the animals. So pretty much Adam and Eve ran the world, literally. <laughs> you know, uh, who runs the world? Adam and Eve. Uh, <laughs> 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 they literally did. Um, but but what God established, though, in, life, in, in addition to that, is that I run you. How did he do that? You know, you have dominion over all this earth. You can eat of every fruit of a tree except for this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So I think sometimes we, we may mully over this, this verse and so take it, take it very lightly as if Adam and Eve just had a different craving that day. And so say you never tried that fruit. Let's try that fruit. Let's see if, how bad it really is. But we understand this, that Adam, remember Genesis 2 when we talk about the, the creation, I, I usually like to use this analogy that Adam is 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 naming all these animals. He doesn't find somebody for himself. God says it's not good for man to be alone. And Eve comes in. I'm just giving an example of what this tree really meant. So you remember back in the day you were a kid, you know, you had your, you know, your friend came around, came around your way or maybe that girl or that guy that you kind of liked. And so you're walking around your neighborhood, you know, your house. You say, yeah, this is my backyard. This is my basketball hoop. You know, I'll be shooting like Kobe back here, you know. And so, you know, I'll be right here. That's my jungle gym. You know, I'll be like flipping and stuff and, you know, all that stuff. And in the middle of you trying to be big dog, Mama st sticks her head out the window and says, Alan, you better come in and clean your room. <laughs> Immediately, your coolness goes away. Because <laughs> you're reminded now, you're put in a place where you're now, uh, I ain't the total boss here. There's somebody that's a boss over me. Right. I'll be back. I got to clean my room real quick. <laughs> now, imagine Adam, right? Now, this is, this is Alan's version, right? Imagine Adam. Now, Adam's the only dude, this fine woman that he already got, flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood, comes into the scene. Now, imagine him walking around eating, you know, this is, this is what's going on. This is the garden that we're going to live in, baby. You know, and you know, this cat, you, uh, look, 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 you see that big cat that just ran over there with stripes? Tiger. I named it. You, you see that red fruit hanging from that tree? Apple. I named it. You see that uh, that little thing that's uh, slithering on? Snake. I named it. But imagine walking past that tree of knowledge of good and evil, and Eve asking, well, babe, what, well, what about that? It's just like that mama hanging her head out that window and calling out to clean your room because he's reminded that I'm not the boss, that there is a boss over me. So whenever they pass this tree throughout their days in this garden, no matter how good they had it, they were reminded that there was an authority over them. Adam and Eve had everything they needed, everything they wanted, except authority over themselves. And yet that was not enough. It was not. A, listen, the serpent didn't have to be that sneaky for him to get him. He explained to Eve, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. She knew and he knew because now let, let, let's get to the verse uh, in, in chapter three. Let's, let's go. To, let's go there real quick for, for some of us who, am, who have not heard this before, because we can't just put it on Eve. I know, uh, you know, fellas, we like to say, well, it's your problem. It was your fault that we fell. But let, let, let's let's get to what the scripture says. Come on. Ladies, I, I got you today. Today, I got you. After this verse, we might be against each other again. 
three verse, uh, verse four. No, no, verse six. Genesis, Genesis three. I'm sorry. Genesis three, verse six. And it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was what? And he ate. Her husband who was? But Adam never spoke. Adam was silent. Adam allowed his wife, the one that he was called to be a protector of, to come under the, 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 the trickery and the deceit of the serpent and eat of the fruit that he was told personally not to eat of. And not only was he silent, not only was he with her, he ate of it too. So Adam's, you know, we, we ain't innocent either. And so when we see that Adam and Eve were not satisfied with the authority and the dominion that God had given them. And yet now in 2018, that is the basis of the sin that we're talking about. We want to be our own gods. We don't want authority over us. We get to work, we get the interview, and we sit in front of the manager. Oh man, I love that manager. Give it about two months. Well, I can't stand that manager. I just want to come into work whenever I want to. I want to do whatever I want to. I want nobody hanging over my shoulder because you can't stand authority. It's embedded in your sinful nature. You cannot stand. When we start getting teenagers, or parents of those who have gone through teenagers, you even not forget teenagers when they're kids. They, we rebel against our parents from the beginning. As in our human sinful nature, we don't like authority. So Adam and Eve caused this decision, and now it's embedded in us. And this decision that they have made, even in their, in their, in their, where they had freedom and they w- did not have sin in them yet, because of their decision then, sin has now been embedded into our system. And so because of that sin, we've been kicked out of God's family. Y'all, 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 y'all don't believe me. Y'all don't believe me. I'm gonna be like a PD. Y'all don't believe me. Go go to uh go to Genesis 5 real quick. Genesis 5. Genesis 5. Should have never turned away from it. Alright, so listen to this in verse starting with verse 1. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, he blessed them, and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered the son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, I'm a math, I'm a math uh, geek, right? It's a law called the law's, law of syllogism, which means if A equals B and B equals C, that means A equals C. Makes sense, right? Right? If A, <laughs> I guess. If A equals B... B equals C, so that means if A is the same thing as B and B is the same thing as C, that means A is the same thing as C. Better, right? So we will look at it as, as God said, you know, it says that God made Adam in his own image. Then later on we read that Adam made Seth, had Seth in his own image. So it would look like that Seth then would be made in God's perfect image. Make sense? But something happened between Adam's creation and Seth's birth. Sin entered our DNA. And if you know God, and you know God does not know sin. And so because of sin, we've been kicked out of the family. Where's more, Minister Allen? Ephesians, Ephesians 1. Go, go with me, Ephesians 1. 
Ephesians 1 verse 5. Ephesians 1 verse 5. I'll start two words before the, the, the verse. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. PD and I, it's funny, I was listening to an older version. It was destined this time, but thank God for addition. But PD and Courtney wouldn't go and, and adopt Declan tomorrow morning because Declan is biologically theirs. It wouldn't make any sense, correct? But, but if Declan was not biologically theirs and they wanted to engraft Declan into the family, they would have to sign some papers called adoption papers in order to bring him into the family. The fact that we had to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ means we were in a state where we were outside of God's family. I know it sounds nice. I know, thank God, Kingdom Kids is on today, uh, is going on today. But I know it sounds nice, but one thing that we set up our children for failure, if we tell them from birth that everybody is God's children. Because biblically, we have to be adopted through the Son of Jesus Christ. So if we already tell people we've been entitled to sonhood, to, to daughterhood, to, to God, then that means why do I need to worry about adoption? I'm already in the family. But if we understand that we are not in the family, then we ha- the next question is, how do I get into that family? Jesus Christ. So sin set us, separated us from God, also in the sense of being in his family. So now sin, if you look at the track of man from, from Genesis, we have sin. We have the first murder between Cain and Abel. We have even a, a descendant of Cain, Lemuel, who, who not only did he sin, but he was proud of his sin. Came into the house and said, they said, Cain killed one man, I killed seven. seven. He was proud of his sin to the point where God obliterated the earth, reset the earth with Noah, and even Noah and his family was jacked up, and they continued to sin. And so now he called Abraham, and Abraham didn't really know what it means to trust God. Abraham making his own decisions to go into Egypt in the famine rather than trust God, causing himself to have to lie about Sarah. He caused himself not to even trust God. Man had sin and it was a problem. There was nothing that could be done as far as man man, man goes. No matter how much man loved God, sin was still an issue. But how many know that there was a promise that was made in Genesis 3? Right in the middle of the curses, there was a promise that was made. And no matter how unfaithful the people of this earth were, God was faithful to that promise. Genesis 3, I didn't, I didn't expect to say, say in Genesis for too long, but the Lord is calling. Let's go back to Genesis 3. So at this point in verse, verse 15, he's already pronounced the... the uh, no, no, he's pronouncing the curse of the serpent first. In verse 15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promises a seed to the serpent. It says, you won today this battle, but there will come a battle where you will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but he will crush your head. That seed isn't a general spo- spoken. So I, I know we, we know, especially like in, in uh, there's some Creole like praise songs that were, where it's like we stomping on the devil's head. But we, that, that's great. Nice. You know, you want to get over the works of the enemy in your life. That, that's great in that context. But understand that the seed that God was talking about in Genesis 3 was not us. But that seed was Jesus Christ. 
And so you see that no matter how much Israel was was disobedient to God, no matter how much generation after generation, even those people who were called to be followers of God still had their shortcomings, that even though they were unfaithful, judges, almost in every beginning of the chapter, it says, and then Israel worshiped God, but then they began to uh, be encountered, in paraphrasing, encountered with other gods, and they drifted away from God. And so God had to send a judge to bring them back. It was a cycle, and it didn't just happen in the book of Judges, but the book of Judges explicitly said what's been going on with Israel from the beginning. No matter how unfaithful, no matter how untrue to their promise to God, God held on to the promise to them, even to the point, and I, 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 it, it was remarkable when I found this, when, when I believe it was when Babylon took over Israel. So remember, so the promise came through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then when David became king, God had promised that his, his sons would never leave the throne. And so that was equivalent to saying that the Messiah would come through the line of David. So that's what we see that, they, you know, when we see the genealogy of Jesus, it tracks back to David. But here's here's how faithful God is. So, you know, after David, there was a couple of really messed up kings. And so they began, Israel really became disobedient to God. And we went through the book of Lamentations a couple months ago. And you see that God let them get into exile. But here's how faithful God is. I believe it was Babylon. If it's not Babylon, I believe it was Assyria. Where when they took over the nation of Israel, they took the present king of Judah, who was the line of David, and made sure that everyone in his line had a seat at the table. Do you see the preservation of the promise? Because if he allowed them to just be in the mingle, then that bloodline that he was preparing for the Messiah that he promised would be would be interchanged, intertwined with all these other nations. But he preserved. He says, I'm going to let you get into exile, but I'm going to remind you that I had a promise that I keep I'm keeping and I will keep the line of David preserved by being at the seat of the king. So this promise of the seed runs through. So I'm getting away from my point, but my point in, in this first point, is that our sin is a serious offense. Because not only is it a serious offense because it's just an offense in itself, but it's to whom it is an offense. The creator of the universe. The one who is the beginning and the end. The alpha and the omega. One thing, uh, I believe it was John Piper that quoted, and I'm probably going to mess up this quote, but paraphrasing, he says, the seriousness of offense rises with the seriousness of who is the offended. And so what I like to say is, you know, in school, you rather get in trouble with the teacher than the principal. You rather get in trouble with the manager rather than the CEO. You rather get in trouble with the township police than the state trooper. Because you realize that the higher in authority, the more the more risky the business is. Amen. But how much more so should we be aware of our offense to the creator of those authorities? The one who, when he said, let there be light, light came. That everything that exists only exists because he called it into existence. But yet, for some reason, in our nature, it's like we, we could be scared of the state trooper, but we don't care when we, when we go against God. We're not aware of our offense towards God. So we have to be aware of our offense in order for us to really understand the price that was paid on Calvary. That we have racked up a debt that we cannot pay. No man on this earth could pay. David was a man after God's own heart, the best king of Israel, but he could not pay for our sins. Because every man that was born into this earth was, 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 was uh, born in sin, in iniquity. So in God being holy, so that's our sin is an offense. Number two is God wrath, God's wrath against our sin is just. God is a holy God. He's set apart. He's perfect. There is no, there is no uh, 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 shade of, of any type of sin. He knows no sin. He cannot be in the same place as sin. He is holy and just. 
So meaning that if he's holy, he's set apart, he's holy, he has a standard, he has, this is sin, this is offense to me, and this is what it means like to, to, to follow, follow my obedience. If he's also just is, he's going to deal with you according to the standards that he's already set out. So Deuteronomy 28, PD has, has, uh, has gone into it a lot, especially when we're talking about healing. But Deuteronomy 28 is an example of Moses saying, if you follow God and follow the voice of the Lord, these are the blessings that will come upon you. If you go against the voice of the Lord, if you disobey the Lord, these are the curses that come against you. That word stands true in 2018. God didn't just brush it under the rug be like, yeah, I didn't know it was going to be that bad. So let me just put this inside. I hope they forget it. No. There is a curse that is set up for those who are in sin. God in his kindness has delayed the effects of the, the, the curse, but the curse is still in effect. Amen? And so God being just, if he just, if you came up and be like, all right, God, I understand I sinned, but you know, it's kind of hard out here, you know, and, and, you know, I tried my best and God would be like, you know what, you're right. I'm just going to act like that didn't happen. God would not be just, nor would he be holy. He has to stick to his word. The word, the Bible says, and, and I, be, I forget what, what Psalm, but it says that he holds his word over his very name. So when God says something, he submits himself to his very word. When he makes a promise, it's yea and amen. Because when he makes a promise, he does not shift or waver from what he has said. Amen. So it's the same thing in the blessings as it is in the curses. So we want God to be faithful in his blessings, but we don't want God to be faithful in his curses. We want God to be faithful and say, when you do good, this is what I'm going to do for you. But we don't want God to be faithful and say, when you do wrong, this is what I'm going to do to you or allow to be done to you. Amen? Amen. But God has to be just and deal with sin as sin is. Sin is an offense. And Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. What you earn when you sin is death. God cannot waver from his word. He, he said it and that's it. In order for sin to be paid, death has to come. But here's where God is good. Certain text means Exodus 34, verse 7. Just to give you a background as we get there, Exodus 34, verse 7. Uh, Moses is on the mountain and Moses asked to see God. And so God says, you can't handle, <laughs> pretty much, you can't handle seeing me. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to hide you to the, to, between these two rocks and I, I will pass by. And when I pass by, you will look and see, see my backside because you can't see me face to face. My glory is too strong. And so at this moment in verse seven, God is, is proclaiming through words his character. 34 verse seven. As a matter of fact, let's start six. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Let's stop there. He says he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How do you forgive iniquity and sin, but then not clear the guilty? It's a paradox. It's two statements that put together. It sounds like it's two, you're talking about two opposites. And so how does he do this? So God, so we, we, we have offensive sin that has, been, that has racked up this debt against God. We have a God who's wrath against the sin. Because remember, we're not just saved by, for, from our, our own selves. We're not just saved from the effects of sin. But we're saved from God's just wrath against our sin. You, you understand that we're not just saved from the devil. We're not just saved from the enemy. We're just we're also saved from God's holy wrath against the sin that is in us. 
So how does he deal with this? By sending the one who knew no sin to become sin, so that way we who knew no righteousness could become righteous. We rack up this debt against the holy God, the supreme God, the perfect God, the just God, and we're scrambling, trying to pay it ourselves. Some of us don't even care, because while we were yet sinners, while we were yet even loving our sins, Christ died for us. Some of us weren't even mindful, weren't even caring about that, but God in his loving kindness and his mercy and in his justice found out a solution. I will send my son, my only begotten son, the perfect son, who knows no sin, to die in the place of the one who sinned constantly. So I will put him on the cross to pay the debt that we owe. God had this promise ever since Genesis 3. It was not a last minute decision. It was something that he was already already planning. Some some examples of foreshadowing in the Old Testament towards this this substitutionary atonement. Uh, Turn me Exodus 12, verse 1 through 13. Well, I'll I'll just paraphrase real quick for the sake of time. But Passover, Passover, this is the last plague before Pharaoh let let the uh, the Israelites leave Egypt. And so God gave Moses strict strict instructions. He says, get everybody, get every family to take out the firstborn firstborn lamb that has no defect, no, no problems. To sacrifice the lamb, take the blood and cover the the doorposts of every house. When the angel of death comes through the town, he will pass over the houses that have this blood that covers the the doorposts. We, in 2018, now have this lamb who was sacrificed, the lamb that was spotless, the lamb that was sinless, that now, because we are covered by his blood, when the angel of death comes through, he must pass over us. God did not mean that to be a one-time event, but God was foreshadowing that the supreme lamb that once and for all will do this for the people. The day of atonement, Leviticus 16, when you, you could write that in your notes, the day of atonement every year, this one day every year, and this is, this is very, very important that it's a day every year. It didn't wait for something to happen because sin was always present in the camp. Amen? That this, this, what will happen is that the, 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 the person will bring up two, two goats. And the sacrificer would take one. First of all, the sacrificer had to be purified and sanctified first. So the priest had to be purified and sanctified first. So, so the one who was performing the sacrifice had to be pure, had to be sanctified. And so what would happen is the first goat would come. The person who would bring up the first goat would then lay his hands on the head of the goat and pray over him. And that was symbolic of him transferring his own sin over to the goat. That first goat will be sacrificed. Then the second goat will be driven into the wilderness out of the camp, meaning he was taking the sin out of the camp. Who is our goat? Our, our Christ, our Jesus Christ, is that he takes on our sin and takes the sin out of the camp. Are y'all, are y'all, are y'all with me? And the sin that, was, that is, is ever present in us, he has taken it away. He has died in place of it. He has taken it away off of us and taken it outside of our camp. So that even the Day of Atonement, and, I th- and like I said, it, it, it's, it's very important to know that it happened every year because this was not the end of all end. This was not the, the forgiving of the sin. The sacrifices of the bulls and the goats and the sheep that we see in, in the Old Testament was not forgiveness for the sin, but symbolic of the forgiveness that would come. Hebrews talks about it. it says, yes, in the past that they had, we had sacrificed bulls and goats, but now once and for all, Christ has paid for our sins. What was symbolic then is realistic now. Amen? Not only that, but we also have Abraham and Isaac. I think this is one of the greatest examples. Abraham has been promised his son. And, you know, Abraham, again, like I said, he wasn't perfect. 
Um, he stepped out, and and you know him and Sarah was like, listen, we're gonna figure this out on our own. He, you know, he, you know, he does his business with Hagar. Ishmael is born, kind of messes up the situation, confuses the situation. But God still holds fast to His promise, gives him, gives him the son Isaac. The Isaac, the son that they had prayed for, the son that they had waited for, the son that they had, they had almost lost hope as far as, as far as receiving. And so now Isaac is grown a little bit, and God calls Abraham and says, "I need you to bring Isaac to this mountain. I need you to sacrifice Isaac." My real son, my, my, the son of the promise, y'all with, y'all with me? The son of the promise, I'm going to bring up to this mountain and sacrifice. So he brings him up to the mountain. He lays him down, gets it all prepared. He has a knife in his hand. He's ready to sacrifice his only son of the promise. And right at the moment, the angel says, now I know that you're obedient. But understand this, that the father, with the son of the promise, went to sacrifice him out of obedience. This is a, a foreshadowing of the Father, John 3, 16, that he, he loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. So that sacrifice was a foreshadowing of Christ to come. The doctrine of propitiation, propitiation is, an, is a word for, it means satisfaction, or in our case, in, it, it goes hand in hand with substitution. It's re- precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should make provision for the removal of his wrath. God loved us so much that we had his wrath all over us because of the sin that was in us. But he loved us so much that instead of removing us out of the picture, he put his own son to die in our place to remove the wrath out of the picture. Us, when we deal with people and people get on our nerves, we want to remove them out of the situation. You know, some of us is just we want to block their numbers. Some of us, we just don't want to go around. Some people have gotten us that mad where we probably had thoughts of really removing them from this earth. Let's be real. God saves but God in his loving kindness had a just wrath because we are sinners also. We don't have a just wrath against other people. Because the same way that they've been imperfect for us, to us, we've been imperfect to other people. And let's, let me tell you something. If you can't look to the left or right for somebody you've been imperfect to, look up. You've been imperfect to somebody. And so God in his perfection has a right to have a wrath against us because we've offended him and have not reflected his holiness. But yet in his loving kindness, he doesn't want to remove us, but he removes the wrath. How does he remove the wrath? By putting his only begotten son, his perfect son, his blameless son that, had, that, that, that does not have the sin with which, with which that he has wrath. He puts him in our place so that way the wrath that he has upon us can be removed. This is love. But understand what Jesus dealt with on the cross. Jesus is the son of God, the second of the Trinity. Only new perfect relationship. Man, let, let me backtrack real quick before I get into this. Understand this. I remember when I was a kid, I, I had built my own doctrine. And I, I was, I was kind of feel a little bit at peace when I read about it. Now I realized I wasn't the only one that thought like this. But I used to think like, you know, God the Father was upset with, 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 with the world. and was like, yo, I'm about to just... It's about to be done. Forget the knowing the ark. I'm not going to leave nobody. I'm just going to reset. And, and Jesus' son was like, Dad, uh, kind of relax. I got this. Please just give them one more chance. I'm going to go on the cross. I'm going to die for them. We're going to make this all good. As if there was some type of, of, of back and forth between the two. But if, if we were to believe that and understanding the true doctrine of the Trinity, it would mean that we had two different guys that had two different visions. Amen? But because we understand the unity of the Trinity, the unity of the three, three persons in the Godhead, 
that this was a unified approach. This was a unified effort that they as in their unified love for us that they set out this sacrifice for our sin. So in light of that, on the cross, Jesus, the son of God, lost all the good that he had before, all sense of his father's presence and love, all sense of physical, mental and spiritual well-being, all enjoyment of God and of created things. All ease and solace of friendship were taken from him and in their place was nothing but loneliness, pain, a killing sense of human malice and callousness and a horror of great spiritual darkness. Christ was on the cross taking on not the sin of one man, but the sin of the world. The son of God who only knew perfect communion with the father. So meaning he never was in the place to even have an inch of what he was feeling on the cross. Willingly got on the cross and took on the sin of the world where he had communion, where he had where he had fellowship, he had loneliness. Where he had joy, he had sorrow. He was there when he called out, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't just a feeling of forsakenness, but he was truly forsaken so that we can profess the verse that says, we he will never leave nor forsake us. That's the only reason we had that promise is because the son of God came on the cross and was forsaken in our place. The reason why we have joy always available to us because the son of God went on the cross and took on all the sorrow of this world. The son of God who had perfect relationship with God willingly took on the sin that separated man from God. And in that moment on that cross, in that time, and it's not just a moment, he was in agonizing pain. It wasn't just a second and that was it. But he was going through the, the effects of the sin of the world. Why? So that we didn't have to. Jesus literally went through hell. We talked about it when we went through Lamentations, that hell is a separation. The real reason hell is hell is because it's separated from God. Jesus literally went through hell on the cross. He went through separation of the Father, the one who truly didn't deserve it, but willingly took that place in order for us to never have to experience it. I talked about it in a series of Lamentations. We don't know what it is to be without God. We haven't, we haven't a, a, a kind of inch of it. When we talk about our testimony before we came to Christ and we have kind of like hints of it, and we, some of us are more extreme than others, but we really, as a, human, as a human race, have never felt what it really feels like to be without God. And I, and I alluded to this in, when I was going to the Lamentation. I said there was only one place, one time, that God was not present, and that was on the cross. The father, that he had forsaken his son, said the children who were sinning, the children who were in sin, would never feel what that felt like. Christ took on our punishment. Christ took on the things that we deserve in order for us to never feel that. Out of his love. You don't know what it feels like. And not only that, but I can only imagine the son of God saying, you don't really know what it really feels like, the joy that I get from fellowship with the father. And so I don't want you to lose that chance. I don't want you to lose that opportunity. And that's our standpoint is that now we have access to the full presence of God because he took on the full absence of God. That He was separated from his father. He felt the pain that we should have felt. Galatians says that he took on the curses of man that was on the tree. He took on the curse that we deserve to take on. So God dealt with him as if he had been exceedingly angry with him. 
as though he had been an object of his dreadful wrath. This made all the sufferings of Christ the more terrible to him because they were from the hand of his father, whom he infinitely loved, whose infinite and whose infinite love he had he had eternal experience of. Besides, it was an effect of God's wrath that he forsook Christ. Christ. This caused Christ to cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This was inf infinitely terrible to Christ. Christ's knowledge of the glory of the Father and his love to the Father and the sense and experience he had had of the work of his Father's love to him made the withholding the pleasant ideas and manifestations of his Father's love as terrible to him as the sense and knowledge of his hatred is to the damned. That have no knowledge of God's excellency, no love to him, nor any experience of the infinite sweetness of his love. The son knew what it meant to be in fellowship, in right fellowship with the father. Yet in that garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but yours be done. He knew what he was getting into. He knew what the cost would be. He spent eternity past, always in right relationship, never even having to think about what it looked like to be separated from the Father. But yeah, he willingly did that. Philippians 2, verse, eight, verse 5 to 8, real quick. To Philippians 2 verse 5 and it reads have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross life that's all he knew Death was a, a, was a result of our sin. Yeah, he took on death. He humbled himself, first of all, to become the man that he created. Because remember, Christ was there in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among men. He was there in the beginning. He humbled himself and took on flesh. And thank God, because in Hebrews it says, now we have a high priest that we can relate to. That though he was tempted in all ways, he sinned not. He became what he created. To go on the persecutions, to go on the disrespect, and at any moment I could just think, I'm like, do you, do you even know who I am? You sit here, you bash me, you call me the son of the devil, you call me all these things, but do you, do you not know that I knew you before you were even in your mother's womb? Do you know that at any moment I could call down a legion of angels right now and I could be gone? I could be done with this mission? As a matter of fact, Christ was so dedicated to the mission that he evaded death in other ways because he knew he had a mission to come. There was many moments where man was about to kill him and he evaded because he knew what he came down to do. In the face of people who would disrespect him, he knew, I'm going to provide a way for you to come back to me. That's love. He humbled himself, took on flesh, but then not only took on flesh, but went through death. Death was never part of the original plan for man. So that's the second layer to it. He could have taken on flesh and lived, lived, eternally, lived eternally if he wanted to until he needed to go back up. But not only took on the, the flesh and the appearance of man, but he then the nature of man, but he took on the punishment and the consequence that man had brought upon himself in order for man to have a way out of this death. So Christ came 
on his cross on Calvary. And when, when the earth was shaking, the ground was breaking, the, 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 the dead began to rise even in that moment. The Bible says that, that those who were, who were dead had come out of their graves. How even the, 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 all, this, all this chaos was going on because God had removed himself for that moment in order for him to be forsaken. One great amazing thing happened at that moment. In the temple there was this thick veil that separated the holies of holies. And remember that I said in the, in the day of atonement that the sacrificer himself had to be purified. So not everybody could walk through this veil. That even those who, who were uh, kind of this group, small group of people who could go in, even before they get in, they had to go through this, this, this ceremony of, of cleansing before they go in. And even when they went in, they used to tie them with this, this, this rope around their waist with bells. And so they knew that when they came in, if the bell stopped, that they, were, they came in and they were unworthy and they, they had dropped. And so this was how separated from the rest of the camp, separated from the rest of the people, and this holy of holies is what encompassed the presence of God for Israel. In this, in this temple, as Christ died on the cross and he was paying our price and this great exchange was, was occurring, the, the veil that, that, that covered the temple, now remember this veil wasn't, as, wasn't, wasn't thin like, like this curtain here. This veil was a thick veil. It tore but what was, what was important about how it tore is the direction of the tear, that it tore from the top to the bottom. Because of Christ taking our place, he has reconciled us from the Father. And understand that this mission was not initiated by man. This mission was initiated by God. Ever since the sin in the garden, the rest of the Bible is about a pursuit, not a man towards God, but of God pursuit after man. That God had established this, recon- or this reconciliation between him and man by sacrificing his own son in the place of man. And so now the veil that has separated man from his presence had torn from the top to to the bottom saying now this separation now this this blockage between me and you is now gone why because the blood of my son on that cross has paid for it Amen. Christ has died in our place so where does that leave us if somebody bought you a brand new car brand new car cash straight out I ain't talking about some Kia Rio some Hyundai accent. I don't know if anybody drives these things or anybody ever listens to this drives it. I know shade. I'm talking about they bought you a Mercedes Benz S Class. I said, here, you don't deserve it. You didn't do anything for me, but I gave it to you. You would take so much care about that, about that Mercedes. You would make sure, even if you if it, if it was dirty during the week, if somebody at church, you make sure you get a car wash on Saturday before you come in. Because it, it would be it would be disrespectful to the person who gave you this car if you present it and you didn't use it to its full ability and you didn't take care of it. We have access to the Father. Prayer is only available because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, because he's paid for that access to us. He has given us relationship with him. He has given us access to him. This is a gift, a free gift when we didn't deserve it. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. And so how we respond to Christ dying on our place and this price that was paid on Calvary is to take full advantage of this reconciliation to the Father. We walk in this life, we live this life showing God, I don't take that price that you pay lightly. Not only that, but I will share this gift with everyone that I encounter in this world. I will make sure everyone knows that the price has already been paid. 
Other religions are saying, you know, you got to do this, that, and the third in order to become right. You know, even Muslims, they have to, they have to pray. The Muhammad, who Elijah Muhammad, who is the the the, I'm, that, that's kind of that's, that's different for me. <laughs> no, sorry. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. In the name of Jesus. Uh, but but. The, the Muslim faith, I don't know if you know this, but that the, the Quran tells them to pray for Elijah Muhammad that he may enter paradise. How can I have hope for a paradise? The person who's leading me to that paradise doesn't even know if he's going to get in or not. So not only do I have to do these alms, I have to go to Mecca, I have to pray five times a day, do all these things to myself. But then at the same time, I got to take on my burden and pray for your burden too. But we have a way that's already been paid, a door that's already been unlocked. You don't have to find the key to it. The key's already been paid for. It's already, the door's already been opened. All you need to do is walk through. This price has been paid. The value of this gift should cause us to daily, by moment by moment, have it on our minds, have it on our hearts. Lord, how can I use this gift to the best value? In my life, what can it do in me and what can it do through me? When you think about that person that you feel, ah, I don't know if I want to bring him, bring, bring, and I'm speaking to myself, I don't, wanna, I don't know if I, I feel a little shy to bring the gospel. Remember the price I was paid for you to be able to have a gospel to share. I paid too much for you to be shy. <laughs> those adoption papers, I, let's go back to the adoption. That, those adoption papers are signed and the ink is the blood of his only begotten son. And so I have adoption available into the greatest family on this earth and on heaven and in heaven. The angels look at the love of God and are perplexed. They don't understand the love that God has for man. So how we live in light of this price that was paid on Calvary is how we live in the fullness of all that God has called us to. We live in the fullness of all that God has available to us. We love God with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our strength, all of our soul. And we love each other as we love ourselves. We walk this earth as testaments of his glory, saying that there was a price that was paid on me. If I have low self-esteem, then I don't really understand the price that was paid for my life. When I feel low about myself, there's an enemy clouding my vision to see this cross. Because that alone will remind me of the value over my life. When we see our brother and our sister devaluing their life, we'll remind them of the price that the God of the universe, instead of resetting this earth, he remade us. That we become new in him. That we can be, become, we can be redeemed by the son of God. So we say thank you, God, that we don't have to deal with the effects of your wrath because we believe in and we confess Jesus Christ as our, as our Lord and our Savior. That he's taken our place, oh God. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you didn't deal with us by removing us, but you dealt with us by removing the wrath from us. Lord, and that you didn't just do it, Lord, in a way that you showed that you just kind of hid our sin, Lord, but you dealt with our sin. How did you deal with our sin? By giving your only begotten son, your only son that was truly born of you, Lord God, the only son that truly knew communion with you, community with you, and fellowship with you, Lord, the one who knew no sin, to die in the place of the ones who were full of sin. 
And Lord, now we have righteousness. We are called righteous by the blood of the Lamb. We are, we are covered. The doorposts to the house that, that we are in are covered. That way when the death angel comes by, it has no, no, no ownership over us. We thank you, Lord, for redeeming us by the blood of the Lamb. We thank you, Lord, that the promise that you made in Genesis 3, that you held fast to it. Lord, I thank you, God, that you didn't make it a conditional promise. <laughs> you had the power and the knowledge and the wisdom to do so. It wasn't a mistake that you made and you thought back and said, I should have said if and then. Lord, you knew that if you made it conditional, it would never happen. Because we would never live up to our, our side of the bargain. But Lord, it was an unconditional promise that the seed will come. And that though the serpent will strike his heel, he will crush the head of the serpent. We thank you, Lord, that sin was dealt with on the cross. Lord, that he who became, who knew no sin became sin, said we can become the righteousness of you. That we can be in right standing with you. Lord, it doesn't take away the fact that in the court, according to our own records, that we will be guilty. It doesn't forget, it doesn't, it doesn't, Without the power of Christ, without the blood of Christ over it, Lord, it doesn't say that you just turn a blind eye to our sin. But you take our record, and instead of us, you put Christ in place of us. So that spirit of heaviness is replaced with a garment of praise. That, that where sin had left the crimson stain, you wash us with the blood of Christ and make us white as snow. The exchange that you give us that has happened, that happened on, on that cross, on Calvary. We thank you, Lord. So, Lord, let us live in light of that promise. Let us live in light of, of, that, of that exchange. Let us live in light of that transaction that happened on Calvary. That, Lord, we don't live as people who owe you. We don't live as people who are still boggled by our sin, Lord. But Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we have overcome our sin through the blood of the Lamb. And so, Lord, we live as people who owe you our lives because you gave your life. And so now where you have died, we die with you, Christ. Where you have died, we have died with you. And we live a life that's pleasing to you. We live a life that brings you glory. Thank you, God. That you thought of us when we weren't thinking of you. We lift you up, O oh God. We praise you, O oh God. We thank you for the gift, O oh God. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. That concludes this week's message, and thank you very much for listening. For more information about Kingdom Living Ministries, please call us at 732-324-2200 or visit our website at kingdomlivingnj.org. Also, you can write to us by mail at P.O. Box 519, Rancocas, New Jersey, 08073. And lastly, if you would like to partner with this ministry through your prayers or financial support, contact us via email at partners at kingdomlivingnj.org. Our prayer is that this message has encouraged you to live out the kingdom of God daily in your life by your obedience to His word. God bless you.